Technology is going so fast I can't see. Welcome, Mere Mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Kyron, host of the Mere Mortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information that is within to extract some themes you might not have thought about and to also look at innovation and where we are heading in human history. Indeed, we do have Energy, a Human History by Richard Rhodes. So this book is published in 2018 and it's about 350 pages in length, a solid eight to nine hours of reading for me. And there's also another hundred pages of bibliography of notes and things like that at the end. It is a brief flash through 400 years of human technology and energy. So yeah, trying to cover a long time span in a, in a short book. And in particular, he starts in the 1600s in England and he goes through basically the transitions, the use cases and inventions that were required to get us from where we were, which was using wood as the main energy source to where we are now in the 2000s. So really showcases how we went through wood and then coal using that for steam energy, how oil came along, electricity was created and nuclear and then renewables and you know what's going to come in the next 50 to 100 years. He's got some predictions and even some warnings, I suppose, at the end. It's really focused on the innovations and so in particular the stories in this. So you will hear of a lot of individual people like Thomas Edison, like James Watt, and there's also uh, accompanied with pictures describing uh, and showcasing what he's describing in the book. So of uh, ships on fire, of uh, you know advertisements back in the day, horses, photos of actual nuclear energy, and even some charts and things like that. So this book is very heavily West centric. I'll just get that out at the start. So there's not much of Asian history of. Uh, of their energy sources and how it was used there. And in particular, it's uh, separated into three parts, these being power, light, and new fires. And to be honest, I couldn't even really distinguish what these (laughs) titles were particularly for. I kind of get it, but it seemed rather arbitrary. And some of the uh, sub chapters here will be to make for all the world, pursuing Leviathan, a cadence of water, a gift of God, the dark age to come, one-armed men doing welding, things like that. It did seem a little bit arbitrary, which I will talk more about at the end. So who was Richard Rhodes? Well, he was born in 1937 and is still alive and kicking to this day. Very good. He has published 23 books and they really range in variety of his topics. So a lot of them are about energy and and things like this, but he also has from, from war to prion diseases to even books about childhood abuse. He's probably most famous for his book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which was published, I think, 30, 40 years ago, something like that, and is a book I might actually have read 10 to 15 years ago before I started taking notes and uh, doing these, well, obviously before doing these book reviews as well. Uh, So I might have read one of his books before, but I I can't remember. I would have to reread it or read it again to to see if I I actually had. But that is his most well-known one, uh, which he got the Pulitzer Prize for, I believe, back in the day. So let's jump on to the first theme, which is technology, the art and craft of unlocking energy. Now, I suppose it's a question of why is this important? Why is energy 
um, such a, a critical thing to humans and why is it so much part of our history? And pretty much it's because it's fundamental. Uh, the law of con conservation basically dictates it can't be destroyed, it can only be changed, and it is essentially work. And I think it's interesting where he started off in the 1600s. And if I had to lay a bet, I would say it's probably because that's where maybe that's the second order effects where we got a bit more complex with our energy. Um, so this is where, you know, we would heat the coal, uh, to, you know, release the, um, the latent, the heat that is stored within the coal to convert that to steam, to then convert that into mechanical force, to pump up water from the mines, that sort of thing, where it's this kind of looping thing. Whereas before, you know, we might've just been burning wood just to get the heat from it. And so this is where we see, okay, humans are getting a bit more complex. Uh, it also could be because of the feedback loop. You know, you, you heat up coal, you do all this to get the water out of the mine to get more coal. So it's kind of this doubling up of of uh, being able to get more resources to get more of the resource that you're trying to burn to, you know, that sort of deal. So what are the real drivers for, for this innovation of technology? Why are we actually trying to unlock energy? And it's actually quite interesting that it doesn't seem to come from a desire for more. It's actually more of a, a pain that is felt from, uh, he just starts off the book with talking about wood shortages and how uh, there was just basically no wood in Victorian England because they were chopping down everything because they were using so much of it, which is why they needed to start move on to coal. And now, of course, when you move on to coal, that's when you start getting smog in the air and, um, and things like this. And uh, what are the other reasons that we would uh, then need to transition to steam is because, okay, well, we're mining all this coal, but all the early easy deposits are, are getting filled with water or we're, we're having to go deeper. And these are starting to fill with water because now we're getting below the groundwater table. Now we need to invent steam to be able to get more of this coal. So it, it's really funny where it seems that if things just didn't change, we wouldn't actually need to unlock more energy. If, if uh, for example, pack horses on the roads, there was no real desire for a car because there was there was real no change in the infrastructure of what was happening with pack horses being used on on roads. So this was essentially carrying goods from city to city via via horse and, and cart. And it's really interesting to go, oh, okay, that, that wasn't a, a pain because people were just accustomed to that. Nothing was changing there. Uh, and it was, you know, only other things being introduced where it was like, oh, all right, we're feeling this pain. And this could be just from environmental forces such as water. It could be from other inventions causing more problems over here, which then cause problems in this industry. And now this industry needs to change. I, I just find it fascinating that, okay, it's not, it's not that we're kind of inherently greedy and asking for more. It's just, we just don't want things to change. And this sparks more change, funnily enough. So that was, that was a, I'm, I'm sure there are some people and some of the inventors in this were imagining the bright future, but you know, it's, you don't need, no, you need the phone, the iPhone or the, the, um, the smartphone until someone's invented it and put it in your hands. So very, very interesting for that. Going on to the technology and the art and craft of it, this is where, okay, well, how are these people actually unlocking all this energy? What were they doing to create these inventions, this technology? And it seems like such a mix of art and craft, of skill, of talent and hard thinking, and then also of luck and just question marks. So 
it's it's funny that common sense and science doesn't actually seem to help a lot of the time. So I'm going to jump here to page 54. And this is in the 1700s, I believe, where, uh, yep, James Watt is, uh, he's experimenting with all of these boilers and this steam technology that is really becoming important. And he's having some success with this and uh, he's starting to, to notice something. And so we go on to this section here. More experiments then into the summer of his marriage. What measured how much steam it took to heat a volume of cold water to boiling? To his surprise, he discovered that water converted into steam can heat about six times its own weight of well water to 212 degrees. Being struck with this remarkable fact and not understanding the reason of it, I mentioned it to my friend, Dr. Black, who then explained to me his doctrine of latent heat. And so then Joseph Black, whose research field we would today call physical chemistry, was the discoverer of latent heat. It had been taken for granted for centuries that adding heat to a substance steadily increases its temperature. To the contrary, Black noted boiling off a small quantity of water takes about six times as long as does bringing it to boil in the first place. And so this is where they're discovering, okay, even though you're heating something, in this case, uh, water, and you add more heat to it, you'd expect the temperature to rise, which it does. But then it's this funny thing, when it hits 100 degrees, you can keep adding more and more, but the temperature of the water doesn't rise. What, what the hell's going on? And you're noticing, okay, some of this water is now converting to steam. And so this is where they're discovering, okay, this is where we're having to expend more work, energy, to change the state from water to gas. And this just, you know, until you have that fundamental block in place and, and realize, oh, okay, this is actually what's happening. It just seems so counterintuitive. It's why isn't it just linear and it just keeps going up. And this is where we can see, okay, there's a, a bit of just pure luck. Like you can't, it's not common sense to think that <laughs> it's common sense to think the other way. And so this is where people are having to uh, use this mixture of almost backwards thinking or in if you want to put it in a more positive way really radical out of the box completely switch your mind type of thinking to discover these new laws these new ideas which will then lead to inventions like uh, the steam engine or better ways of creating pistons or en engines or attaching an engine onto a, a onto a cart or to some wheels or to rails or whatever it is. And it's really funny because then the page before this, we see Watt is just breaking his back to, uh, you know, apply his methodical nature of, um, I don't know what you would call it, just really focused, intense ways of perfecting, of gaining this efficiency. So he's changing the boiler diameters from a hundred mils to 10 mils and experimenting with different steam injections. And we can see like, he's so methodical and he's using a lot of hard work and talent. And then he also needs to have this kind of luck to actually be able to make some breakthroughs. So that is just a, uh, I, I suppose the technology and the art and craft of it. Let's jump on to transitions. We we're just talking about transitions, transitions. Why do they take so long? Why does it take so long to move from coal or wood to steam electricity because what we see in the book is that there's just these huge overlaps there's people and find out something but it's not till 50 100 years later until it's starting to be implemented on a large scale and so i think there's some things i took from this one is that a lot of it just seems mundane 
What do you think that two of the most critical use cases of uh, energy would be in the last 400 years? What I gained from this book and also from the book How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley is there's kind of two things, pumping water and arc welding. They are some of the biggest things that uh, have changed human history. Pumping water from wells is uh, from coal mines in, in particular is just this critical thing to be able to get enough coal out of the ground to then be able to to use on steam engines and uh, and and to to heat water, which we still do today. A lot of energy of the world is used um, by by thermal coal, and then arc welding, which was for natural gas, and basically you could get as much natural grass gas out of the ground as you wanted. It was actually not super super difficult. What was difficult was transporting it and. Arc welding was just this critical, critical piece of being able to create the infrastructure of long enough pipelines to be able to get from one point, you know, one city to the next thousands of kilometers uh, to be able to actually use natural gas in a way that made sense. Uh, And I would actually recommend checking out the book recap that comes out um, after this because I've got some funny stories about how mundane pumping water is from coal mines because I used to work in one. Um, and how it, even to this day it is still kind of mundane. So go check that out. So not much love and focus, I think, is on um, on some things, which is why it can take so long because if it's just this kind of boring, arcane, random thing, like well, using it to uh, what's, what's one of the critical things we need? Well, we need to get water out of the mine. You know, it's the best and brightest people aren't focusing on that particular problem. Another one is there are many hard limitations and many steps are needed to get onto the next stage of being able to unlock something. So jumping now here onto page 263. So we're going a bit further into the future. So this is in the 1900s in the United States in particular. And we're seeing, okay, they're starting to get a lot of natural gas out of the ground. They're starting to realize this has some benefits over coal because it's not as polluting to the atmosphere, uh, at least in the cities. So there's not as much smog. Uh, And they're starting to use it, but they're uh, still encountering some problems. So despite this expansion, huge volumes of gas went to waste. Wet gas, gas that uh, flowed mixed with petroleum, was routinely vented into the atmosphere or flared off. Gas was often left to vent into the air, sometimes for years, when drillers abandoned dry holes. A 1935 U.S. Federal Trade Commission report to Congress estimated that 20% more gas was wasted nationwide between 1919 and 1930 than was consumed. 4,375 billion cubic feet wasted compared with 3,520 billion cubic feet consumed. A lack of pipelines to deliver the gas to markets accounted for part of the waste, but Texas oil drillers, historian Christopher Castaneda concludes, concerned only about black gold, continued to vent trillions of cubic feet of waste gas into the atmosphere. And then it starts to go on talking about global warming and how this had an impact on that. But we can see just from those numbers, even though natural gas was in demand, more of it was just straight up wasted into the atmosphere. And what was the reasons for this? Well, we can kind of see some. There was just infrastructure. We didn't have pipelines and um, and the investment in infrastructure was just lacking. There was the new technology was actually needed to be able to use fracking more efficiently, to be able to squeeze out these extra efficiencies where it would then become profitable to use this gas that was being vented off into the atmosphere and go, actually, you know what, there's, there's some money that can be made from this um, and in, in an economical sense. 
Uh, more problems are created. You know, the gas was actually not seen as an extra resource. It was a byproduct of annoyance, much like uh, how I, th- I believe it was with cows, the kind of whey protein industry that popped up for for bodybuilders and things like that. You know, that that protein, that whey protein was just discarded waste for the longest time until people realized like, oh, if we put this in a powder, gym rats are going to love this shit. <laughs> and so we can just see how waste, something that it seems as a waste, as a byproduct, as an annoyance, actually is a resource. It is, you know, dense, full of energy. It's just finding that combination of factors to be able to to make use of it takes time. Like it and and it takes many breakthroughs and some of it is due to kind of human folly as well, not focusing on the right thing, like you mentioned with those Texas oil drillers. But we'll we'll come on to more of that in the observations. There was a critical section. One of the reasons I wanted to read this book was I'm interested more about nuclear. And kind of one of the things was what stopped nuclear energy? That seemed to be a big thing back in the 1940s. We were you know, spending a lot of time. The first use case was obviously horrific, using it to drop bombs on um, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But there was this time period in the, what, 1950s through to 1980s, something like that, where nuclear was, okay, this is going to revolutionize the world, you know, this cheap energy, which is going to be amazing. What, you know, what happened? Why is nuclear not just taken over? And there was kind of three things that I took from this book. One, and probably the biggest one, and one I didn't actually realize was cost miscalculation. When... Uh, they were starting to create these these nuclear power plants in the United States and America, uh, in Russia, Soviet Russia, and other places across the world. Uh, a lot of the early ones were lost leaders. They didn't make money, and they, which kind of makes sense, you know, they, they're a new thing. How are we going to use this nuclear energy? Um, they're experimenting. They, they don't really know what they're doing, and uh, we can see. Okay, there was this kind of cost miscalculation. They just thought. Uh, yeah, sure, we'll, we might take some losses on these early reactors, but once we get to scale, you know, things will be going, we'll be moving, and this will uh, be very, very profitable. Not so, not so. Uh, so there was kind of some bad assumptions linked into that, and the rate of progress was mm, kind of overestimated. They thought they'd be able to get things quicker, as well as some you know faulty assumptions and and just, I suppose, bad incentives because a lot of the reactors they were using were these kind of double reactors where they could use uh, in the process of creating energy, this would also convert some of the uranium uh, into a, a byproduct of uranium, which they could then use to make atomic weapons. So it wasn't just being focused on the energy, it was focusing also on this aspect of, of getting, um, you know, things to stuff to be able to use to kill other people. And the that was in there and then funnily enough there's a bit of FOMOing back then before FOMO was a was an acronym so this is fear of missing out people were FOMOing into the nuclear thing it was the the big hot thing and when you're FOMOing into stuff you make you make some pretty bad decisions so that was uh contributing to it so that was probably from what I could tell from this the biggest aspect of it Another one was some assumptions related to theories on actual nuclear energy itself and how it affects humans. And there was one called LNT, linear no threshold. And this was basically the theory that was saying that no matter the amount of uh, nuclear 
energy hitting a, a human, the nuclear particles, their radiation in this case, there, there was no, it was linear. So the more you got of it, the worse. And there was no threshold. There would be no aspect where if it's beneath this, it's kind of, it's not going to hurt a human. It's not going to be really bad, which is rather silly when you think about it because we're constantly being bombarded by radiation from our sun. Uh, and, and basically any decision that we make, even in our food, there's, you know, aspects of radiation in there for certain types of foods. And we can see, okay, well, this, this was not a great theory, but it was kind of the, in the atmosphere. It was kind of like a fear mongering thing where, uh, people were just so afraid of this stuff of, of nuclear and rightly so because of the horrific way it was first used was, okay, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want a nuclear power plant next to me, next to my city. And we could see, okay, this this was a large part of the science was, was wrapped up with this. And then funnily enough um, was a kind of more social aspect, which was the environmentalist movement, which kind of got mixed with this neo-Malthusian way of thinking, which is, you know, uh, if there's too much energy, the abundant energy is going to lead to too many humans because we'll start giving birth more because we think we can. This is going to lead to food shortages, the population bomb, all of this sort of thing. And so nuclear bad got mixed up with the environmentalist movement, which was by, by and large kind of a good movement. It's nice to have trees and non-polluted water and clean air and things like this but you kind of yeah, throw in the baby out with the with the bathwater when you're saying nuclear equals bad when nuclear by and large is the safest uh most cleanest source of energy that we have uh to date and you know it's still kind of got this bad taint this air this era to, uh, aura to it so there's quite a few things getting mixed up there of why nuclear didn't have a strong start to begin with in the 1950s to 1970s, 1980s. Obviously, the high-profile events of Chernobyl and of Fukushima and Three Mile Island also gave a very bad stint to it. But once again, if you look at the stats and the hard data, nuclear energy is cleaner, safer, uh, less deaths per per human, um, per you know, like kilojoule or, or what, whatever way you want to measure it, um, than than any other source of energy. And it's just like, well, geez, why why are we not there yet? Why haven't we done it? And so this is where we get onto kind of the future. So if you jump onto page 339 and you will see on your screens now, uh, there's this really, really interesting chart, which was the historical evolution of world primary energy mix. So basically on the, on the y-axis, we have the, uh, a log scale of the percentage of energy. So how much of energy is being used by humans across the world. And on the x-axis is where we have just time going from the 1850s to the 2100s. And what we see is with these really interesting curves where wood was the pre predominant one, about 70% of the energy uh, source of humans in the 1850s. And then as this is declining, we see coal is rising and coal tends to peak around the 1920s period. This then goes down and reaches, you know, 70%. As this is declining around the 1970s is when oil reaches its predominance uh, as, as the highest point. Then we get into some more kind of speculative or ones which aren't, 
following actual data as uh, at the moment because it's in, into the future, so it's predictions. And this is where we see gas around probably the 2030 period is reaching the predominant mix of energy. And this is where we kind of see, oh, okay, nuclear is actually starting, but it's probably not until the 2070s, 2100s, where it's actually going to be the predominant one. So, you know, that's still a fair, fair while into the future. And then what is going to be next after nuclear? So <clears throat> it's really interesting because it's these things just take time, even though they seem like, oh, man, we, we have it. You know, there's this such better use case, this tool, this, this, this way of creating energy and energy is, is good. Let's, let's make no mistake about that. More energy for humans leads to better outcomes on basically any scale or metric that you want to use for human flourishing. Energy is good. So we want more of it. And yet these, these really good ones that we have nuclear, like why isn't, why isn't, why haven't we got it? And it just takes time. And you know, what is going to be the next one after nuclear? It's unknown as well. It could be fusion. And they were saying in the book, just kind of based on rough ideas of when things were first discovered versus when they hit the peak, there is this kind of hundred year lead up to it. And so just based off of the kind of charts that we saw there, the next one is probably going to be discovered in the next, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years, something like that. And this could be something like fusion. It could be geothermal. Maybe it's one we already kind of know about solar, but a, a more efficient way of getting solar. So you know, getting it from outside the atmosphere and uh, and bringing it down to earth or something like that. Who knows? Um, via satellites, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, interesting things, but we don't know. But what we can be reasonably certain of is that our energy sources that we're using in the future are not going to be the same as the ones we're using now. For those things I, I talked about beforehand about the unlocking of energy, why do we need to unlock it? Well, shit just changes and we just can't, you know, coal is, you know, the more coal we need, the deeper we have to go, the more problems we encounter, the more expensive it is, and the more we feel the pain and then need to change and transition to something else. Ooh. All right, let's get into my own observations and takeaways. Human folly, man, there is some funny and rather depressing stuff in this book. And I'm going to jump onto here into page 118. And we're going back into the 1800s now. And basically, there was this guy called Davy, and I'm not sure of his first name, can't see it here. Um, but he was, you know, in the contemporary of uh, Charles Darwin and, and people like that. And yeah, they were using a lot of distillation. So they started creating fine tools which could then be used in kind of chemistry. So beakers, drip um, funnels, all, all these sorts of things. And they were starting to be able to distill gases from um, ammonium nitrate uh, crystals and things like this. So we go on to here. If a gas was available in 1800 that could eliminate the terrible plane of surgical cutting or tooth extraction... Why did humanity have to wait until 1842 for its first use in dentistry? Jay answers this question brilliantly, not because Beddoes and Davies somehow missed nitrous oxide's anesthetic properties. Davies' researchers' observation makes that clear. But because first, the most apparent effect of the gas was giddy animation, not unconsciousness. Second, the dominant medical and religious opinion of the era held that pain was the voice of nature, a necessary condition of life even a stimulus that kept traumatized patients alive. And third, 
Anesthesia was perceived to be unnecessary and even insulting to the surgeon, alien to the crucial elements in an operation, which were the surgeon's skill and the patient's bravery. Anesthesia, Jay concludes, when it emerged in the 1840s, was as much as a response to surgeons' needs as to patients. Technical advances had led to a more sophisticated operations, and the ability of the patient to endure them had become a limiting factor that needed to be addressed. Wow. <laughs> the the surgeon skill, insulting to my uh, surgeon skill to uh, to be able to not feel pain. You know, it's it's that sort of stuff which it just kind of boggles the mind a little bit. And I always, there's definitely stuff like this nowadays where it's, it's just this archaic thinking, like you need to have this thing because it toughens you up. Like it makes you a man. And to a certain extent, I, I, I kind of can acknowledge this, but <laughs> it's when it goes so far, like, no, you, you really should be awake when you're, the doctor's cutting off your leg because that's, that's necessary for him. And it's necessary for you. You won't survive unless you feel the pain. It's like, whoa, what the fuck, man? So it's really funny just seeing these. And, you know, most of these stories also had this limitation as well. So there was this mixture of human, just backwards thinking, not even backwards thinking. I think it, I think it makes sense. I think it's some, and sometimes rightly so. If you were stationed, living next to Chernobyl, you can be wrong in this small sense of why you don't like nuclear energy you know nuclear energy is bad for the environment nuclear energy is uh it's gonna the radiation from the plant is going to you know make my children deformed or something like this you can you can be wrong in that sense but also right uh, uh but right in the sense that you didn't want to be next to chernobyl and so it's it's kind of this weird mix where human folly can be sometimes useful and then a lot of the times, probably most of the times, it's it's not useful and is actually limiting the ability for us to grow and to have better lives. So it's it's yeah, it's this weird mix where common sense is helpful, but un, it's, it's like it can be helpful in the short term and for small instances, but in the long term, it's not a great bet. <laughs> I wouldn't bet on human human common sense to be to be like the the top thing that'll get us the um, the best outcomes in life. What I liked about this was uh, there was also really nicely told stories with a lot of citations at the back. So he wasn't just making shit up out of his ass, which is beautiful. Some really funny anecdotes. One I mentioned right at the start was uh, when the <clears throat> the kind of not automobile, I think it was people on the railroads and they were starting to use the steam engine as a mechanism for, for work and being able to, to um, push the engine forward and uh, you know attaching it to axles and things like this. And they were going, I think, 30 kilometers an hour, about as fast as a human can run, maybe slightly, slightly uh, faster than that, maybe up to 40. And the people, some of the quotes from the newspapers back in those days were, you know, we're going so fast, we can't see. You look out the side and you just can't see and it's all a blur, which is true. But it's, it's like, you know, if you just pan your eyes, <laughs> you can see. <laughs> So there's these really funny anecdotes like that, uh, random facts as well. What was the lubricant for that was used on machine guns for the most in World War One and World War Two? You'd be thinking like, ah, oh, you know, if we've developed guns, we've probably got oils and lubricants that we were extracting from plants and things like this. No, we're using it from um, sperm oil from whales. That was the main uh, lubricant that was used in World War One and World War Two. So really just going like, oh, damn, we're, we're still very backwards in, in many ways. And 
and still doing kind of horrible things to to animals, to the planet, just to be able to, I mean, in this case, it's just horrible all over, right? We're killing animals to be, then be able to create things to kill ourselves. But it's just really intriguing just seeing it wasn't that long ago where we were still using these really, uh, what we've just termed now as archaic, like we're killing killing sperm whales just to, to get that oil, you know, this tiny kind of sacket of the head of the whale uh, and just leaving the rotting carcass in the in the ocean, like what the fuck? So um, the last observation I had was the arbitrariness. And so it skipped much of Eastern history. I already gave a slight explanation of why I thought he started off in the 1600s. But, you know, fire, what about the technology of, of, you know, eating meat and cooking that meat and stone axes and tools and converting uh, you know, running energy uh, or, or mechanical energy that we would need to to hunt down an animal into using snares and traps and, and tools and things like this. I think they're all forms of energy production or energy saving at least. And I, I don't blame him for this or anything. It's just just know that this is there is this arbitrariness to this. And I I think it's kind of hard because so much of this leads into one another. Why I was kind of laughing a little bit at the uh, sub, uh, the titles that he had here of power of a new fire of power, light, and new fires is because they all just bleed into one another. When you get more efficient with the steam engine and pumping water and getting more coal, you, you use that coal to create more steam to pump out more water to get more coal to then be able to transport that coal on wheels to then you know use that infrastructure to then you know get resources from one place to the next which will enable this energy it's it's all this kind of unlocking of one thing leading into the next and it's very hard to find these kind of definitive boundary points of like yep now we're transitioning to electricity yep now we're moving away from uh the horse and cart into the automobile yep now we're going to you know move to nuclear or what we're going to do in the future so yeah it is somewhat arbitrary but I don't think that's a, a bad thing. It's just, it kind of has to be, to be honest. So in summary, it is a think and lengthy book, but it doesn't feel like a tome to me, which is good. It's the overall theme felt relatively unbiased, but I'm sure that many of the stories in here were kind of spruced up. It is a kind of history storytelling. So it's not dry facts. It, it is entertaining. I, I did enjoy reading this. It did keep me motivated throughout so I'm sure a bit of these were kind of spruced up a bit just to make them a little bit more fun and exciting. Uh, unless you haven't read much history, I don't think there's anything astoundingly new in here, it, but it is a very nice summation. And there's definitely nuggets here that I'm going to use later in my life and, um, and, and hopefully stick with me, which I think are, are good examples of you know human folly or why it takes so long or to to create new things. So overall, I'm going to give Richard Rhodes' Energy, A Human History, a very solid 7 out of 10. Yeah, I probably want to read more from him and some of his other books and the fact that he was doing other various types of topics also made me go, okay, this seems like a kind of interesting guy and just reading this was indeed fun. And that is it for today, my mere mortalites. Thank you for joining me to the end of this audio. What are your thoughts on energy, on human history, on Richard Rhodes? Have you read any of his other books on nuclear? I would actually really like to know that um, topic. 
The best way to do that is by getting in contact with me. There's many a link down in the show notes. If you're interested in the boostergrams and being able to do that via the podcasting app you're listening to, uh, I would just recommend checking out the book recap because I explain that more clearly there. Uh, you can also help support the channel via various mechanisms. PayPal is one option. And once again, there's links in the show notes for for you to be able to do that. This is a value for value podcast. So everything that I do here is is kind of free up front, but I just ask that you return some value in whatever form you want to, whether that be sharing it with a friend, whether if you're knowledgeable about nuclear energy and have some insights into that, I would love to know that. And then also monetary support is very, very much appreciated. I do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world and ciao for now. Kyron out.